James and group. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Luke chapter 1. This is fall break, and I always think of fall break as our real anniversary at the church because it was 31 fall breaks ago. Uh, we came to Duncan for the first time and stayed in the Holiday Inn, not the Holiday Inn Express, but the original, the original Holiday Inn. And I remember Lance and Mary Jo, Mary Jo came to our, our door and got us for dinner and then we went to, uh, Vince Seller's house after dinner. And, uh, I met with the elders and Debbie met with the elders' wives. And then the elders' wives decided they wanted Debbie, but not necessarily me, but I negotiated, <laughs> negotiated with the board and, uh, boom, 31 years ago. So wow, goes by fast. You've turned to Luke 1 because we want to look closely at Luke 1 and see how much Luke, the person, we can see in Luke 1 and in Acts 1. But let me start here, and I want you to think with me. In Matthew 22, the Lord Jesus asked the religious leaders who hated him and were just a few days from having him crucified, he asked them publicly, what do you think about the Christ? And the Christ is a title for the person the Old Testament promised would come to be a lamb and ultimately the lion, right? What do you think about the Christ? He's asking these religious leaders who claim to believe in the Old Testament scriptures. Whose son is he? Whose son is the Christ? And they said to him, he's the son of David. I mean, you can read it in 2 Samuel 7, and certainly New Testament begins with a genealogy in Matthew, stressing that Jesus is a direct physical descendant of King David. Then Jesus says in verse 43, and we're in Matthew 22, I'm just giving you this as a prelude to what we're going to look at today. Jesus says, okay, you're saying the Christ is the descendant physically of David, so therefore David was before him and would outrank him, humanly speaking. Then Jesus says, how does David in the Spirit, that's very important, how does David in the Spirit call the Christ Lord, and that word Adonai is a word used for God in the Old Testament, saying, and then Jesus cites part of Psalm 110. Jesus is saying Psalm 110 is scripture, it's authoritative, it's accurate in what it says about the Christ, and that particular piece of scripture was written by David, David in the spirit, and he cites Psalm 110, which says, the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my, David's Lord, David's Adonai, another word for God in the Old Testament, here talking about Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Verse 44, Jesus says, if David in the Spirit calls the Christ his Lord, how can David be his progenitor? How can he, the Christ, be David's son and therefore inferior to him in time? And what's the answer? He's both. The Christ is not just a man. He's the God-man. In his humanity, based on Jewish seniority, he's inferior to David. In his deity, he's David's sovereign. In fact, he's David's Adonai. And David says that. So watch this. Jesus is saying that a flawed human being, David was not an angel. He was not the fourth member of the Trinity. He was a human being. In fact, he was a very flawed human being. 
I won't list all of his faults, although it's awfully enjoyable to list other people's faults in public, just so you'll know. So you got to watch out for that. But very famously, he committed adultery and murder. But for his whole life, he faced a battle with anger management issues. But Jesus says, David's the author of part of the scripture in the Psalms, that that scripture says that the Messiah would be David's Lord, and so you can bank on that. David in the Spirit says that. David, inspired by the Spirit, said that. And therefore, what it says is true. This morning, consistent with what Jesus says about Psalm 110, David is the human author of Psalm 110, we're going to emphasize that the Bible is a human book. Boom, there's David. But it's not just a human book. Watch this. The divine inspiration of Scripture did not erase the unique personalities of the human authors of Scripture. And you don't have to be a theologian at a seminary for that to be very important in your Christian life, about the way you understand the Scripture, the way you read Scripture. So let's look at that this morning, this concept of especially Jesus and the New Testament, even as he cites the Old Testament as David and the Spirit writing and speaking. Let's pray for our teachability to this as we look at Luke 1 and Acts 1, and also for those who protect and serve us. And uh, let's see. Thank you, Lloyd. Shout out to our heroes of the week this week. Uh, Jack Smith has done a lot of wonderful work, woodworking projects for the church over the years, including this pulpit. So we thank you, Jack, for that. Carson Bowles ran a PB, personal best, at a big cross-country event last Thursday in Chickasha. So you you talked her through, right, Krista? You got her coached up, didn't you? Yeah, running a personal best is a big deal. Just how much pain are you willing to endure for the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes? Uh, we've been doing uh, rumors on Ron Miller that are actually true to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Today we're going to go to our hero of the week, one of our heroes of the week, through rumors about Jack Smith that are really true. Jack Smith needs only two turns to beat anyone in the world in tic-tac-toe. That's how good he is. Jack Smith has only two speeds. Speed number one, walk fast, very fast. Speed number two, flap his mighty arms and fly as fast as he wants to. I almost cut that out. In the editing process. Number one, other than the Bible, Jack Smith never reads books. He simply stares them down until they give him the exact information he wants. <laughs> now, we're going to, just as a cliffhanger for you guys, uh, we looked at Ron, we looked at Jack. Next week, Lord willing, um, we're going to look at rumors about Ken Wanzer <laughs> that are really true. Okay? And don't forget that catfish dinner, right? And don't forget bringing the desserts. Somebody's got to do it, okay? This morning we're going to emphasize the Bible is a human book. But it's not just a human book. God's inspiration of the books of your Bible, Katie, did not obliterate or erase the personalities of the humans that wrote it down. But it shielded them from errors. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to talk about how God inspired the books of the Bible. We're going to look at the first couple of verses of Luke and Acts, both written by the same guy, Dr. Luke, and we'll see how much 
of the man Luke is in his work. And then thirdly, we're going to think about two objections you're going to hear on the History Channel about believing in the inspiration of the New Testament. I mean, make a long story short, Jesus says a lot about the inspiration of Scripture, but he's talking about that during his ministry before any of the New Testament is written. So some folks will say, it sounds very sophisticated. Well, Jesus confirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament, but he said nothing about the New Testament. Uh, actually, he commissioned the New Testament. So let's think about this, and let's just first let the witness testify for itself. Let's see what Scripture says about the inspiration of the Bible. First or Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy, prophecy means receiving and transmitting divine revelation, not necessarily just about future things. Know, first of all, that no prophecy, no divine revelation of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Context, context, context. For no revelation of God through Scripture was ever made just by the unaided act of human will autonomously or independently, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. David in the Spirit said what Psalm 110 says, and because David in the Spirit said it, it's authoritative, and you need to realize, have a better conception of who the Christ is going to be. He's not going to be a political Savior, but he's going to be a soteriological, eternal, forgiveness of sins, rule of the world kind of Savior. Second Timothy 3. Let's go there. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. David in the Spirit spoke from God. Look at Second Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture... Old Testament Scripture and New Testament Scripture is inspired of God. Theopneustos, God breathed. And profitable because it's inspired for teaching. What are you going to teach up here? Reader's Digest? I mean, you got to teach the Scripture, right? Uh, for reproof, telling me where I've gone wrong. For correction, how I can get back on the path. For general training in righteousness so that the man of God, anthropos there means Katie as much as Connor. It refers to human beings, okay? That believers, male or female, um, angel as much as Dustin, that the man of God, that believers may be adequate. I hate that translation in New American Standard, not adequate. Uh, did I make the team? Well, you're adequate. You're going to be third stringers. Um, it gives you everything you need to be what you want to be, equipped for every good work. So let's define the inspiration of Scripture this way. God the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors, like David when he wrote Psalm 110, or Luke when he wrote the Gospel of Luke, such that they composed, 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 composed and recorded without any error, error, the exact message God desired as time of Scripture in the words of the originals. So watch this. We have something that's at the very heart of the character of Scripture. We're going to call it dual Authorship, D-U-A-L. We have a divine author, let's capitalize author there, God the Holy Spirit, that inspires the entire canon of Scripture, all the books. Then we have individual human authors, Moses through John, about 40 different people writing over several thousand years, giving you one consistent theology, one big story about how God's going to send the Lamb who's going to ultimately be the lion that's going to end history on God's terms. So inspiration of Scripture involves dual authorship. Can we say that this is the Word of God? I would say, yeah. Can we say it's the Word of David? When we read Psalm 110, Jesus did. 
Can I say Luke wrote Luke Acts? Yeah, he was the human author, right? So we have dual authorship, which is why the Bible is a human book, but it's not just a human book. Let's go from inspiration to looking at one example of this human book, which is more than a human book, as we look at the beginnings, the first couple of verses of Luke and Acts. You're looking at Luke chapter 1, right? We're going to look at that pretty closely. But look, number one, Katie, promise me you'll never be afraid to look at the table of contents in your Bible. Now, you've only got 27 books in the New Testament, but I threw the Old Testament up there. I remember as a first-year Dallas Seminary student, you know, as somebody who thought I was going to be a dentist, now he's in Dallas Seminary and loving every minute of it. But you go to chapel four times a week, and we didn't have classes on Mondays. And I always said, I hope the uh, chapel speaker doesn't speak from some book that's going to take me 10 minutes to find, and all these other Bible brainiacs will be able to find it in five seconds, like Obadiah. I mean, if we wanted to have fun, we could have a contest here and say, don't look at your table of contents, find Obadiah in your Bible, and for some of us it might take us four or five or six, seven minutes, right? So I learned real quick, it's okay to look at the table of contents. But you look, that's the that's the New Testament books. Those are the 27 inspired, preserved New Testament scriptural books. We're looking at Luke and Acts, and they're fraternal twins written by the same human author, okay? So we're going to look at that. Let's say a couple things about Luke the man, the human author of Luke and Acts. Uh, number one, he's the human author of Luke and Acts, right? Number two... He was an active participant in Paul's ministry. Now, we're going to say that the New Testament books are all written by apostles or people who worked very closely with the apostles. And Luke is an example of that. He wasn't an apostle, but he worked intimately with Paul in several of his missionary journeys all the way to his Roman imprisonment. And right before Paul is executed, he writes to Timothy, Hey, bring the scriptures to me and hurry up because I'm not going to be around much longer. Only Luke is still with me. Demas has left. Titus found something else to do. All my friends are leaving me. It's just me, God, and Luke right now. So Luke was faithful to the end. So Luke was an active participant in Paul's ministry, and that's really helpful since he writes the book of Acts, which is, you know, from 13 through 28, those chapters is all about Paul's ministry primarily. And also, Luke is the only Gentile. What's a Gentile? Somebody who's not a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Luke is the only Gentile to write a New Testament book, and he wrote two of them. What books did he write? Luke and Acts, yeah. Uh, in Colossians 4, the way Paul arranges some names, it's obvious that he's distinguishing between some of the Jewish Christians and some of the Gentile Christians, and Luke is in the Gentile category. So uh, even Gentiles can be saved by faith in the Jewish Messiah, because the Jewish Christ is the Savior of the world. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be probated. We're not getting probation, we're getting salvation. That's why we write great songs about them, because it's a, something God does for us, and that's something we do for God. Let's move from the human author to the book of Luke and Acts. This is the only gospel by a non apostolic witness, and I mean that in the sense that Matthew was one of the twelve. Mark wasn't one of the twelve, but he worked very closely with Peter. In fact, in the New Testament scholarship business, a lot of people call the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Peter, because obviously Mark had interviewed Peter extensively before he actually was inspired to write the Gospel of Mark. 
Uh, John, was he an apostle? Yeah, he was Jesus' best friend. Uh, Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was very close with Paul, and he tells us he did his homework before he composed and recorded, superintended by the Spirit, these two books, Luke and Acts. Okay, The Gospel of Luke tells the same basic story of Jesus, but includes some details you don't find anywhere else, like how important women were in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and how very counterculturally this would not have gained him any points with his culture and with the powers that be. It would have hurt him. He respected women ontologically as his equal as as the equal of his human male disciples, I should say. So Luke has a lot of references to Jesus interacting with women in positive ways. He talks a lot more about angels than Matthew, Mark, or John. He gives us a lot more parables, and he includes some medical details. Why would he include medical details? Because in that same passage in Colossians 4 that clearly marks him out as a Gentile, not a Jewish believer, he talks about, you know, Dr. Luke. Luke's a doctor, a physician, the beloved physician. Okay. Um, and the book of Luke, guess what? Is the second volume of a two-volume set. The first volume is called the Gospel of Luke. What's the second volume called? The Acts of the Apostles, right? So let's look at those. And I, you know, I honestly don't think I had ever com- compared those to the beginning of Luke, beginning of Acts. I don't think I was consciously aware of the fact that Luke was the human author of both those books until I'm sitting in Howard Hendricks, uh, Bible study 101 class at Dallas Seminary. I thought that was so cool. But watch this. Here's the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning, the apostles themselves, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully. He did his homework before he started writing. He talks about things that Mary did and Elizabeth did, the other guys didn't include, because he cared enough to talk to them in detail, because he had learned that women are just as important in the plan of God as, as men. Jesus taught him that uh, through his example. Uh, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in logical order, most excellent Theophilus. That's a weird name, most excellent Theophilus. I, mean, I could see most excellent Dale or most excellent Bobby, but I call her Robert. When I'm mad at her, I call you Robert. It's kind of like the Karen's dog, Lenny. I call him Leonard because we're not on good terms anymore. Uh, <laughs> That's not his name, that's a title. Most excellent is a way you would politely refer to Roman government officials. Just like today, even if you're a radical Democrat, you should refer to James Lankford, one of our senators, as the Honorable James Lankford, or the Honorable Tom Cole, our congressman, even if you disagree with him. That's a title. This guy's a big shot. Uh, I'm, I could be wrong. We'll find out. Some people say Theophilus was somebody considering the faith, and Luke's trying to talk him into it. I don't believe that. I think uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are clearly, clearly discipleship manuals primarily for believers. I think Theophilus is a big shot who happens to be a fairly new believer who's really interested in the details. And so Luke gives them to him and to us uh, in his book, The Gospel of Luke, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. You don't teach unbelievers, you teach believers. That's the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Let's look at the introduction to Volume 2, Book of Acts, right? The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the first account? What do we call that? 
Gospel of Luke was the first account. He's saying, this is the second book I'm going to write about the ministry of Jesus and how the ministry of Jesus continues after the ascension through the capital C church slash lowercase church. Okay, C church. The first account, the Gospel of Luke, we call it. I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, Theophilus, you see any different there? Same name, right? But what's the difference between the first reference and the second? He doesn't mention the formal title. Just like, uh, I, you know, I don't know Tom Cole or James Lankford, although I'm only a phone call away if they want to chat, you know, I'd be glad to talk to them. But, you know, uh, when you first meet somebody or when you're in certain formal situations, you might call them by their title. But as you get to know them, you get to drop it. Like, Dustin doesn't really know what to call me because he called me Dr. McCoy at Cameron and just call me Dr. Brad. No, you just call me Brad. <laughs> Brad's fine. Uh, Susan Camp, uh, who's the director at CU Duncan, when students are around and she needs to shout, give me a shout out, she calls me Dr. McCoy, but in, in private, we're just friends. She calls me Brad. So something's changed here, and I think Luke has written uh, probably in about 61 A.D., and Acts is written fairly soon after, probably 62, but during that interim period between the time that Luke wrote his gospel and then the book of Acts, his friendship with Theophilus had morphed into the point where they were more personally interconnected and they, uh, Theophilus wouldn't be offended if his title wasn't being used there. But the first account, the Gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the ascension. Watch this. Using kind of the life of Christ A through Z, Luke starts at the very beginning. Virgin conception, virgin birth, and walks us through the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Uh, expiatory execution, yes, yea, Jesus rose from the dead, zap from Zion. So the Gospel of Luke starts before the birth of Christ, virgin conception, all the way to the, asc- to the ascension. Okay, The death of Christ, three days later, what happens? The resurrection, 40 days after that, Olga, what happens? The ascension, Acts 1. 10 days after that, Acts 2, the church age starts. So the Gospel of Luke takes us from the beginnings of the ministry of Christ to the ascension. The book of Acts, after this introduction, goes back to the ascension, picks up exactly where the Gospel ended and picks up the story. And he's saying, look, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He says, in a little while I'm going to be gone. I'm going to go away. You won't see me, but you'll see me hereafter. But you got stuff to do, guys. And Jesus began the New Testament ministry, overlapping with the old in the Gospel of Luke. But he hands the baton to the apostles, and now to us in our generation. So Jesus began uh, his ministry, as it were, in the Gospels, but now it continues in the book of Acts and to this day, until uh, he did his ministry with the apostles, until his ascension, and that's where the book of Acts picks up. To these, after the resurrection, before the ascension, to his apostles, Jesus presented himself alive. We just sang about that, didn't we? Uh, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. How do we know there's three days between the death of Christ and the resurrection? Because all four Gospels tell you. How do we know there's 40 days from the resurrection to the ascension? Because Acts 1, 3 tells you. 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. A really cool thing about Luke and Acts, Jack, is watch this. The Gospel of Luke is like a big inverted spiral 
that goes to Jerusalem. And the, and the gospel from chapter 9 to 19 emphasizes while the disciples don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem because it's a, it's the red zone. It's, it's bad. bad. People want to kill Jesus and probably them. And they try to talk him out of it. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. And you get 10 chapters of the things that happen on his last trip to Jerusalem. And the disciples, the closer they get, the more nervous they're getting, right? But the Gospel of Luke is like a big inverted spiral that ends in its bullseye, Jerusalem, with the death, resurrection, and ascension. Gospel, the Gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, starts as an outward spiral, starting with the ascension all the way out into the church church has impacted the belly of the beast, in the Western world, what was the belly of the beast in the first century? The Roman Empire. It controlled everything worth controlling. And you got Paul, no less, the guy who wrote 13 New Testament books right in the center of Rome, actually influencing the secret service. Philippians 1 says the Praetorian Guard are hearing the gospel because of Paul, like the secret service today. So yeah, um, a lot of cool things when you look at this. And you can see that Luke's humanness, he's just a guy, you know? who's been falling in love with Jesus Christ, who's been influenced by Paul's ministry, especially, who is wanting to help disciple Theophilus and all of us, as it turns out, because what he writes was superintended by the Spirit such that he composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted in Luke and in Acts, right? And uh, let me read from the Nelson Study Bible about the humanness of this human author, um, the book of Acts begins with a reference to the author's former account and was written to the same person, Theophilus. So he's talking about the Gospel of Luke as he writes the first part of the book of Acts. Even though the author does not mention himself by name in either the Gospel or Acts, the earliest traditions identify Luke and all of the early tradition together as the author of the two volumes. And if you're just making this up, if you have this document you've written and you want to impress the church and influence the church, uh, would you really pick Luke, who's a very obscure person, relatively speaking? I mean, Andrew's still available. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. If you're just making it up, why not put Andrew's name on it? The fact that the earliest church from the late first century, and all the manuscript copies we've got, has Luke, according to Luke, above the first uh, statements of Acts or Luke, clearly I think is good evidence that Luke was... The beloved physician was the guy that uh, wrote this book. The fact that Luke was a doctor is one reason that he uses technical medical terms in both Luke and Acts when he's talking about certain issues that the other guys either wouldn't know or wouldn't even use. You know, um, I guess we talk about the flu. Doctors talk about influenza or whatever. You know, they talk about the technical terms, that kind of thing. Watch this. Uh, so called the beloved physician by Paul in Colossians 4. Luke was a doctor. Paul met in Troas, mentioned in Acts 16, 8-11. He cared for Paul during the illnesses he suffered on missionary endeavors. So Paul traveled with a personal physician. So that's, it's biblical to have a personal physician. If you can afford one, okay? It's not easy. Paul's references to Luke in 2 Timothy 4, 11 and Philemon 24 portray, portray Luke as Paul's faithful traveling companion. After the two met in Troas, Luke included himself with the missionary team recorded in Acts 16 and Acts 20, which is the second and third missionary journeys. Now let's go to the theology of Acts according to the Nelson Study Bible. 
The book of Acts, not Luke, but Acts now, is a historical narrative, but at the same time has profound theological significance. It's written to be a discipleship manual, to ground this this guy and all of us in the early events of the church, to convince us that because the resurrection is real, Jesus' death didn't end his movement. It's the whole basis of his movement, because his death was the substitutionary atoning sacrifice validated by his resurrection. That's the whole point of the Christian Christian faith. A believer's faith rests upon the facts of history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These historical events were recorded by Luke in his gospel in order to evoke faith. If the historical fact of Christ's resurrection is not true, then a believer's faith has no foundation. As Paul states, if Christ has not risen, your faith is worthless. The book of Acts goes on to reassure believers then and now that their faith in Christ rests on facts. The extraordinary growth of the early church was based directly on the reality of the resurrected Christ. His command and empowerment of the apostles through the Holy Spirit is the only reasonable explanation for the incredible and rapid spread of the gospel in the first century, despite all of the opponents against it. The early Christians were not testifying about a dead Christ, but a living Savior whom they had seen with their own eyes. The same is true for us. Today, Jesus lives and continues to work work through his church. Okay, let me give you an analogy. In the same way that Jesus, the living word of God, in the beginning was the word, and the word Jesus was with God the Father, and the word was deity, you know, that's a title for Jesus. In the same way, the living word of God, well, let me ask you this. I've only got a couple more chances to do this. Was Jesus the son of God, or was Jesus the son of man? See, that's a trick. Jack, when you go to college, when you're playing, will you please go to OSU and straighten out our offensive line for us? Uh, you're going to have a philosophy professor who's going to say, you know, do you believe this or do you believe that? And quite often on the big issues, both are true in some sense. You don't have to decide if Jesus is God or man. He's the God-man. In the same way, that the living word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God-man. One person with how many natures? One person with two natures. Full humanity, full deity. In the same way, the written word of God, I mean that Bible on your phone or in your lap, is both the word of God and the word of man. One book with one overall message produced by dual authors. God, the Holy Spirit, and the human authors. So watch this. This is one important implication and application of this. Uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit, the human authors of Scripture made no errors in what they affirmed, even though they wrote from their own limited personal frame of reference, consistent with their personalities and their vocabularies and their backgrounds and their experiences. Example I like to use, John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, was a first century guy being transported through time watching 21st century events, or maybe beyond. I'm not setting dates, but I don't see us getting much past the 21st century my own self. But I could be wrong, and I quite often am. But you've got a first century man seeing things and then describing what they looked like to him using his vocabulary, his frame of reference. And what he's saying is accurate, but it's not going to be technically everything you could get if you knew the serial numbers. In other words, in Revelation 6, when he's talking about events just before the second advent of Christ, 
i.e. the Battle of Armageddon, the early phases of it, he talks about the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Now, you can say that's some kind of supernatural angelic manifestation. I think that's a first century guy talking about some 21st century nuclear exchange. That's what it looks like to him. He's using phenomenological language. Sunrise. Hey, Jack, you're going to go back to that philosophy class at OSU. Remember, you're going to be the starting center for OSU for us? Or maybe fullback. Think about that. But, um, yeah, you're talking about that philosophy professor, and he's going to say, well, you can't trust that Bible. It says that the uh, the sun goes around the earth. I, did, I don't remember that. I've heard my dad preach a lot. I've heard Pastor Brad preach a lot. He never talked about the... The uh, sun going around the earth. Well, yeah, the Bible talks about sunset and sunrise. Obviously, right? That's not an attempt then or now to talk about the motions and the relations of the heavenly bodies. It's just telling you what it looks like. And, you know, I've said this a thousand times. Here's the thousand and twenty-second time I've said this. But you can watch Channel 7, or better, don't waste your time through the commercials. Just get on the app and check it out. But the, the channel weather, weather channel seven weather team this does a, a quite a nice job. And uh, Matt DePiro is that the guy's name? This is the head. See, I'm talking about real people here. I don't make it up. Um, you watch Matt DePiro will maybe say, uh, "Well, t- tomorrow we may have some problems because you look on Doppler radar and this is happening, and you got 21st century technology." And then he says, "Tomorrow we'll have sunrise at 6:58 a.m." Now, he's not talking about the sun going around the earth. He's talking about the way it looks. It's just a term, right? So when you've got sunrise and sunset and stuff like that, it's just describing stuff the way it looks. It's not talking about astronomy. It's just talking about your experience of it, you know, and this kind of thing. He doesn't say a hydrogen bomb blew up over Megiddo. He says, I saw the sky split apart like a scroll when it was locked up, when it was rolled up. What is, is that what he saw? Yeah. Is it probably a nuclear explosion? Yeah. Why didn't he say it? He doesn't know about nuclear weapons. He's a 21st century man looking at and describing something correctly, but within his frame of reference. And understanding that can really help you understand the Bible. Okay, we talked about inspiration. We talked about the humanness of Luke and Acts and how much the human author is very present in that text. It is the word of Luke, but it's also the word of God. Um, now let's think about uh, some objections you're going to hear. Okay, Boom, let's go there. There are a couple of objections you're going to hear. I'm saying History Channel. I actually like the History Channel. And occasionally they'll have some real legit conservative scholars like Daryl Bach or someone like that when they're talking about Luke and Acts. But they don't always do that. But here's the thing. Um, two objections. Number one, Jesus didn't write any of the New Testament and he never quoted New Testament books, and he never really directly authorized the New Testament or confirmed it like he did the Old Testament. So, you, you know, you Christians are just making it up. And worse than that, if you saw the Da Vinci Code, you know it's all about conspiracies and committees, and some deep, dark cabal decided in 325, later codified in 397, that only certain books were the New Testament, and they kicked out a bunch they didn't like. Those are the objections you're going to hear. Let's deal with that. First of all, Jesus didn't write the New Testament. He didn't quote it. He didn't cite book, the book of Acts or the book of Revelation or anything. He didn't do that, but he did commission the guys who would end up writing the New Testament. Look at this. First, Jesus taught his apostles, capital A, 
directly designated them as his unique official spokesman. And you see this in passages like John 15, 26 and 27. When the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father the Spirit, starting in Acts 2, who proceeds from the Father, he, the Holy Spirit, will testify about me through you, both verbally and in writing. And you'll testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Uh, it's interesting, Jesus says, later in that passage in prayer, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. One big way the apostles testify not just to their generation, but to all the generations of the church church, is through the New Testament scriptures, okay? Acts 1.8, which is happening um, the day of the ascension, Jesus says, in 10 more days, you're going to get that power, I promise, that's going to supercharge you apostles to be the foundation of the church, need the cornerstone. You're going to receive dynamis, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the remote parts of the earth. Yeah, they physically followed that pattern, but their witness continues today in Dustin's Bible, right? And trust me, when you're living in first century Judea, 21st century Duncan, Oklahoma is the remotest part of the earth. Okay, you can't even see it from there. Um, look at Luke 24. Jesus taught his disciples directly, face to face, for multiple years, and designated him them as his official, unique spokesman. Luke 24. This is the day of the resurrection. He said to the twelve, "These are my words, as I spoke to you while I was still with you on, on my ongoing ministry up to this point." that all things which are written about me in the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, including Psalm 110, David spoke in the Spirit, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures about him being the Lamb and then the Lion. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ in the Old Testament would suffer, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Leviticus 16, and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's basically the book of Acts. You are my witnesses, talking to the twelve, really the eleven, because Jesus isn't there. And behold, I'm sending you forth uh, the promise of the Father. You're going to get the Holy Spirit in a special way ten days after the ascension. Stay in the city first until that happens, and then you're going to be witnesses, not just verbally, but even on the written pages of Scripture. And then look at Acts 10. Mike read this very nicely as our call to worship. This is Peter, one of the twelve, and by the force of his personality was the leader among equals among the twelve, but he wasn't the first pope. For one thing, he was married. Okay? So you can't be the pope and be married. Right? So Peter can't be the pope, I guess. But uh, Peter says, we are witnesses. We saw all the stuff that he did. And they put him to death, but God raised him up. And granted, he become visible, not to everybody, but to special apostolic witnesses primarily, uh, but to witnesses chosen before him by God, that is to us, the eleven apostles, who ate and drank with him after he was dead, after he rose. We know he was really risen from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify, he's the one, he's the exclusive issue. You must trust in him alone for salvation, not yourself or anything else. He's been appointed by God as living judge of the living and dead. Of him all the prophets, Old Testament, and the New Testament apostolic witness said through his name, who he is and what he did, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. So, Jesus did not write any of the Old Testament. He doesn't directly quote it, 
But he commissioned these guys to be witnesses, and not just verbally, but throughout the the process of the church age, which means their writing as well, at least their select writings. Number two, Jesus promised his apostles special guidance and inspiration. Look at this. This, again, is the upper room just before the arrest. Uh, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while being with you, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, he's going to come especially 10 days after the ascension and will continue with the church. Whom the Father will send in my name. He'll teach you all things, all the things you need to know to lead the church, to include the New Testament, uh, and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. How did Matthew remember all that stuff? Jesus said he'd be able to. John 16, 12 through 13. I have many more things to say to you, like the essence of the New Testament, but cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit, comes, he'll guide you. That's all y'all apostles into all truth, so you can continue your ministry, not just through your lifetimes, but through your written documents, the New Testament scriptures. Now, this is my favorite one. In addition to designating the apostles as his official spokesman and promising them guidance and special inspiration and memory abilities, number three, the apostles referred to brand new New Testament books as scripture. And just for lack of time, let's just look at two of these. Look at first, let's look at Luke. Look at Luke um, 10.7. We'll kind of give the, the trick away. Look at Luke 10, verse 7. Jesus has sent the guys out on a preaching tour and said, if you come to some city and they want to give you free lodging, accept it, you know, and that's great. But look at what happens um, in Luke 10, start with verse 5. Whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, he's willing to receive you and receive your message. Your peace will rest on him, but if not, just go to the next house, you know. We're not going to cram it down people's throat. Stay in that house where the man of peace is, eating and drinking what they give you, because you as a laborer are worthy of wages. You're doing them a favor being there, and it's appropriate for them to provide room and board for you. The laborer is worthy of his wages. See that? Okay, now let's go to First Timothy. The cool thing about this one is if Luke was written in about 61 A.D., and that's a pretty standard dating. First Timothy would have been written in about 63, 64. So only a couple of years after that. So almost the ink is almost still wet on the pages of the Gospel of Luke when Paul writes First Timothy. And look what he does in First Timothy 5.18. Let's go to verse 17 because I like that one. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Those are my favorite kind of teaching elders there. For the scripture says, and first he quotes Deuteronomy 24.15. Paul says, the scripture says we ought to have pastor appreciation day every now and then. Uh, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And the scripture says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where do you find in Scripture Jesus saying the laborer is worthy of his wages? That'd be Luke ten seven. Luke is only a couple of years extant when he's quoting Luke as Scripture already. Go to Second Peter three. Wasn't that long ago we were looking at First Peter and Second Peter? I always say that, and I look back, and it's like eight years ago, but it seems like just not that long ago. A couple of years ago. But notice, uh, he's talking about some things are hard to understand in Scripture, and that's okay. That's uh, kind of job security for people like me and James, right? Look at this. 
Look at verse uh, 15. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to the apostle Paul, in all of his letters, Ephesians, First and Second Corinthians, I guess 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, whatever you're going to say, uh, inside joke, in all his letters, teaching in them of these things about salvation and spiritual life, in which there are some things hard to understand, it's not all simple, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the what? Scriptures. Peter, in about 64, is citing Paul's stuff, all of which has been written except for maybe First, Second Timothy and Titus, as Scripture. They're not waiting for church councils to tell them the Scripture. They recognize the Scripture just on the face of it. Let's go to the second uh, objection. We all know, we saw Da Vinci Code, which is... Fiction and, and not very close to accurate on a lot of its details, just so you'll know. Didn't church committees select the books of the New Testament in the 300s? You know what a camel is, right? A camel is a horse designed by a committee. Just so you... <laughs> uh, no, that didn't happen. There were no conspiracies. There were just consensus. In the process of formally rejecting certain... Heretical books, mainly with a Gnostic bent, like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas, which are not in the New Testament because they're too late. They're not written until 175 when the apostles are long gone. The ink's wet and they're like Jehovah's Witnesses tracks. That's why they were never in the New Testament. They're late and they're lawless. All the New Testament documents were written during the lifetime of the apostles. But in the process of formally rejecting those kind of books that had bubbled up, that were circulating in isolated or heretical circles, Starting in the mid to late 2nd century, several church councils in the 300s, in the 4th century, contrasted those counterfeits with the real deal, the 27 books of your New Testament, because those books were directly apostolic, uniquely authoritative, and that was pretty much understood by the vast majority of the church from the 1st century. What happened? But the question is, why did they wait until the 4th century to do this? Why did they wait until... Nicaea 325, climaxed by Carthage in 397, just said, said flat out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are apostolic, those are scripture, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, the infancy gospels of Jesus, those are not. They come later and they're heretical. Why'd they wait several hundred years? Because if you'd gotten all the brain trust of Christianity together before 313, they all would have been arrested and killed after they were tortured. How come? We were illegal until 313 when Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian. And the Edict of Milan did not make Christianity the state church. It just made Christianity a legitimate, lawful religion. It wasn't until Theodosius, about 80 years later, actually made the Christianity the state church, which ruined much of Christianity. Because once all the preachers work for the government, you're going to have corruption, folks. It happens every time. All right, let's close this way. The Bible is a human book, but it's not just a human book. Divine inspiration of Scripture did not erase the unique personalities of the human authors. And you don't have to be a theologian or a seminary student for that to be very important in the way you think about, understand, and defend your Bible. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you have spoken and you have not stuttered as you communicate to us through your written word. Uh, it's the source of doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Help us to really have a deep-seated uh, longing uh, to know you through your truth, through your word. 
uh, to actively, not just passively sit and somebody talk about it, but actively receive it as inspired truth, as propositional truth. Uh, when we read it ourselves, when we study it in detail for ourselves, and when we're sitting under it in the local church or elsewhere. Help us never to see it just as a bunch of factoids or information, but spiritual food designed for our transformation. Uh, and I pray that the truths of Scripture, as they're taught week in and week out, would allow us to construct a lens through which we would see you and ourselves and others and everything around us to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.